I'm sure most of you have felt like this. I know that I have. You ever been a loner? <laughs> you ever been a, an outsider, kind of a not in the in crowd kind of person? You may think it's a little bit surprising because I'm a bit of a type A, type A push myself on people kind of personality. But part of how I got there in the first place was because my family moved a lot when I was a kid. My family moved a lot. And I don't remember the exact number, but I went to something like nine schools in six cities in three states by the time I got into high school. And so I had to kind of learn to adapt, and uh, I, I did that by becoming a competitive freak who just imposed myself on people and made sure that I would be with the, the people on the inside. But I remember a few times as a new kid at school, walking into the new school for the first time. And, and the place where this hit home more than anywhere else was walking into the cafeteria. Walking into the cafeteria as a new kid at school can be an absolutely terrifying experience. Even if you grew up there, you know the kids, you know the school, you know the teachers, your mom has told you 17 times before you even left that morning, you'll be fine. It's a terrifying experience if you're an elementary kid walking into the cafeteria. Well, I have a friend, Aaron Weimer, who's a minister at a church in Johnson City, who tells of this exact experience of walking into the cafeteria as a, a kind of a loner when he was in sixth grade, and uh, he was at this new school, and uh, maybe you've experienced something like this. He says this, when I walked into the lunchroom one day, Absolutely unsure where I could fit in this mass of sixth graders, I suddenly heard Bobby Tarando yell, Weimer, come sit with us. More beautiful words cannot be spoken to a sixth grader who doesn't know his or her place. He says this, Bobby Tarando was no Jesus. But in that moment, I felt something like grace. For me in that moment, he said, grace was having a place where I would not be alone. I'm still thankful, he says, 30 years later, that Bobby took the time to look around the room and invite me to eat with him and his friends. <laughs> Although I should say, he says, Bobby wasn't the best influence on me. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Even the people who aren't the best influences on us can sometimes be people who graciously invite us in. He said, although I should say Bobby wasn't the best influence, influence on me, he said, I didn't care. It was a way to belong. And as often happens at that age, I was more concerned to have friends than to have good influences. Have you ever been in that place where you looked so intently for that kind of grace, that kind of acceptance with others that you would have anything, that you would do anything to have it? course we have psychology books are filled with diagnoses that in some measure derive from the human need to be loved and accepted even if it means being with those who may not be a good influence on our lives even if it results sometimes in being abused and used by others People will go to great lengths to find that kind of acceptance with other people. Countless destructive relationships and bad habits and poor decisions and later regretted tattoos are the result of wanting to be accepted. If you've experienced loneliness, that feeling of being an outsider, then you know what an absolute grace it is 
to be invited into a healthy relationship where acceptance and love are not dependent upon keeping up appearances or maintaining rules of social convention and personal posturing. This call to a healthy, unconditional love kind of relationship is what we see in Jesus' call to mercy in chapter 9 of Matthew. If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Matthew 9. The ninth chapter of Matthew, we're going to read this passage together. Starting in verse 9, we're just going to go through a few verses from 9 through the first half of 13. 9 through 13a. That's what that A means in 13, that first little section, that first chunk of verse 13. Read along with me. Verses 9 through 13a says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. He was in his own city, by the way. He was in his own hometown. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is the call of Matthew by Jesus. And it says this. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard that, he, meaning Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says these interesting words, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jump back to verse 9 here. Where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. First off, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He was Jewish by birth, but he was considered a traitor by his own people uh, because he was in bed with the Romans. So he was shunned by his own people. He was an outsider. He was very uh, clearly in that culture a loner on the outside. He was probably paid uh, by whatever, that, whatever it was that he could skim off the top from overcharging people. And so in Jewish circles, he was shunned for being a traitor and in bed with the Romans. He was definitely not someone to bring home to your parents if you were a Jew. This was the wrong side of the tracks kind of guy. But, but, Jesus offered him acceptance and a place at the table. In fact, at a dinner party in Matthew's own home. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but Jesus actually brings the party with him. Check this out. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, as Jesus reclined at table, that was the usual posture for that kind of dinner party. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, at Matthew's house, behold, that means see or observe. It's what we call an interjection. It's a way of saying here, get this. You're never going to believe this. It says, behold, many, not just a few, but many tax collectors and sinners came, meaning they came along with Jesus. Apparently they were following too. And there was something, of course, inherently attractive about Jesus and Christ's ways. So many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. We know this is considered a no-no for Jesus to do this because of the next verse. 
Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, in other words, this scene, this craziness of the sinners going along with Jesus, in other words, this sight to behold, this refers to the whole scene with Jesus at the table bringing along the dregs of society. When they saw this, verse 11, they said to his disciples, they probably murmured on the side there, kind of keeping it on the DL, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And sinners. Verses 10 and 11 remind us of another verse in Matthew. It's in chapter 11, verse 19. If you want to turn there real quick. Matthew 11, 19, just a couple pages over probably. This is where Jesus quotes what people have said about him. So by this time in ministry, it's interesting, Jesus has sort of a stock of phrases that people use to describe him. They've started to call him these kinds of things. And so scenes like this party that we read about in chapter 9 there, those kinds of scenes are what prompted him to say this in chapter 11, verse 19. He says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Of all the titles applied to Jesus in Scripture, a friend of tax collectors and sinners is probably the most surprising and should be for all who've experienced lostness before a perfect God the most appealing. Not only does he eat with them, not only does he eat with them, but he's a friend of them. Notice these people don't actually talk to Jesus himself. They'd much rather go off to the side and talk to his disciples and murmur to others. They'd much rather sow these seeds of discontent and suspicion sort of on the down low, sort of quietly and in a kind of cowardly manner. That, that term sinners as the Pharisees used the term, meant anyone who didn't keep the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders the way that they, the Pharisees, had prescribed. Today we'd call these sinners the wrong kind of people, the ones your mom warned you about. In Scripture, the list of encounters where Jesus is a friend to those tax collectors and sinners is a long list. Zacchaeus, Matthew, the woman at the well, the demon-possessed, lepers, Samaritans, the mentally ill, the terminally ill. Most of the disciples, when Jesus first met them, are included in that kind of list. Promiscuous women were included in that list. A Roman centurion was included in that list. And at some point in all of our lives, before we knew the grace of God, every single one of us included on that list. But somehow... Somehow we forget that, don't we? Somehow we forget that we were on that list. Can you imagine if you, like Jesus, had people talking to you about those kinds of things? Like those were the titles, the ways people talked about you. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. In most of our jobs today, that can get us fired. 
He's a friend of cheats and thieves. She's a friend of gossips and liars. He's a friend of sinners is what they said. Now think about it. Can you imagine the discussion that would come up about you and me? And the accusations would start to fly. Listen to who she's hanging out with. Listen to who he's hanging out with. Promiscuous people. People on drugs. Muslims. Homosexuals. Drunks. Addicts. Hanging out with those types, are we? Sad truth is that's where we get when we forget that we've been on that list ourselves and but for the grace of God should still be. We create that community. We create that kind of place in our relationships with one another because we have our own rules for what it looks like to be a Christian. We have our own rules about what it looks like to be a Christian, and they often have little to nothing to do with being Christ-like. Which means when we make discipleship about turning, turning out followers of me instead of turning out followers of Christ, when we add our own self-righteous scales to that equation, we turn friend of sinners into a badge of shame when Scripture uses it as a badge of honor. And if you've been in the local church for any period of time, you'll recognize rules like that. We know them well. We have all, all manner of self-righteous Jesus culture rules that are more about making followers of me so that I feel good, if we're honest, than they are about making disciples of Christ. They are the ways, all of the ways that we pharisaically impose expectations beyond Scripture itself and live out of a what-have-you-done-for-me-to-make-me-feel-good-lately kind of place instead of mercy. the way we dress. For most of us in church, the, the general biblical principle of modesty for dress, even though that should be enough, often isn't for us. We may not be aware, but we in church, whether you know it or not, we have our own church brand of acceptable dress. We create a brand when we pharisaically feel the need to up the ante from what normal, sociocultural, what it means to be modest in the body of Christ kind of rules could be to something that is a certain brand of respect that is equivalent to my particular tastes in dress, for example. I told somebody a few years ago that I would drop this, but I don't think I'm quite done with it yet. You know, over the years here, I've been here about 10 years now, there have been numerous people who have told me their opinion about how I dress, perhaps three to four times more than I've received feedback on anything else. You should wear this. You should wear that. You look particularly good today, Scott. Or, I know this isn't said, but I know it's thought because I know it's said to others, and I know that 
eventually it comes back to me. Why can't he just look like a normal preacher is supposed to look? I've had people buy me clothing. I've had people offer to. And I, there's this interesting phenomenon that goes on when somebody tells me that they think I should dress a certain way. You know what I do? I ignore it. Because that's about you. That's not about me and my, my relationship with God. That's not about whether or not I was in prayer in the Word this week. That's about you feeling good about you. And that's Phariseeism. That's self-righteous scales that don't belong in a place where grace operates so the people can know their Savior. Who knows? Pandemonium like button-down shirts and khakis may break out. There are lots of other things that are superficial, self-righteous, measuring me, make me feel good kinds of scales, like decorum and worship. God hears the praises of people when they sing off key. I grieve for the sinners who are kept out of our parties when Jesus would have let them in. We're just getting started. There's a long list. We could keep going for a long time. Let me just mention a few. How about others like where we sit in worship and whether we sit in pews or chairs? Whether we use the KJV or the NIV or the ESV or the NASB or whether or not I mentioned your particular favorite? Whether we sing from a hymnal or from a wall? Whether we read scripture from a piece of paper or from a screen? whether my kids are quiet enough for worship or whether their kids are quiet enough for worship, whether you homeschool or you public school, whether you eat organic enough foods, whether you drive eco-friendly enough cars, whether you own a carry permit, hunt animals, shop at BPS, or whatever other ridiculous, self-righteous rules that we want to apply that you're thinking of that I haven't listed. These, these are not rules of people wanting to make Friends. These are not rules that come from people who are seeking the lost like Jesus obviously was in Matthew 9 and in the whole of His earthly ministry. These are the rules of a flesh-driven attempt to make duty-bound robots out of people so that we can look civilized and feel good and righteous about ourselves. These rules are about making whitewashed tombs of our own hearts more than they are about making disciples. These rules are more about imposing a self-righteous system of regulations than it is about loving people and encouraging them to growth in Christ. We church folks, we act like this. And then we wonder why nobody wants to be in our parties. I grew up in churchianity. I know of which I speak. Churchianity perverts discipleship into a process that creates people who look like me so I feel good 
instead of following Jesus Christ. And friends, this is all about us. These scales, these impossible scales, are all about the losing games of measuring ourselves so we look good and feel better about ourselves. Listen, if Christ was a friend to sinners, then why do we make sure we stay as possible, as far away as possible from those who need Him most? We are stuck in a little Christian subculture. Why do we keep our distance from those who need Christ most? I'll tell you why. Not because we're trying to avoid sin. Sometimes, sure, absolutely. But mostly because we're worried that others will think that we're unspiritual. We're worried about keeping up appearances. We're worried that we won't be accepted, not by God, but by everybody else. We're worried less about what God wants and desires to save sinners than we are about what the person sitting next to us in the pew might think. Hogwash with what someone else thinks about you. When we are so worried about what everyone else thinks instead of God, we lose the mission. Churchianity does that. Churches lose the mission because they're too enamored with themselves. Jesus counted so highly his call to unconditionally love people. He counted so highly his call to unconditionally love people that he didn't give a hoot what anybody else thought because he knew from God that he was achieving what God called him to do in saving lost souls. He knew he would be judged by them. He knew that they would weigh him on their own scales and find him wanting. They knew... He knew that they would only count according to their system of, as it turns out, and he said to them, sacrifice and not mercy. The great irony, friends, is the Pharisees didn't even know it, but even according to their own scales, he fit the bill. Even according to their own scales of sacrifice and perfection, he fit the bill perfectly and yet still operated out of a place of mercy, which means that this new scale, this new way of operating in relationships with one another must be marked by grace and mercy. It must be marked by grace and mercy and not empty sacrifice. And that's the reason why Jesus responds here in verse 12 and following. This is the reason Jesus responds with fellowship instead of Pharisaism. He says, Functionally here, he says, in effect, I choose fellowship over Pharisee. Look at verses 12 and 13 in Matthew 9. He says, but when he heard it, in other words, when he heard the Pharisees whispering about him being a friend of sinners, he said, those who are well, he's talking about them, those who are well according to their own scales, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And then he says this, this awesome phrase. Go 
and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Friends, Jesus himself, when accused of wrongdoing by the religious establishment, he himself said, I desire mercy. For us as the body of believers, fellowship, doing life together is about creating an environment, a community where grace and mercy operate as the glue that holds us together. How badly, how, how badly we need mercy. How badly those who don't know Christ need mercy. We don't need any more of the impossible scales of sacrifice that turn us into self-made well people like the Pharisees here. We need mercy. The world needs mercy. When you're sitting in 11E or Tuscan Boulevard traffic at 5 p.m. and you've been waiting in this long quarter-mile line to move forward and you've got the chance to let somebody in even though they just pulled up and they don't have their signal on, they probably got a kid in the back who's not in the seat the right way or something. And you've been waiting there, but they haven't. Practice a little mercy. Practice a little mercy and wave them on if you can. How about this? When you go out to lunch, you got to lunch and your server is struggling. And she says, I'm sorry. We're really behind. I'm doing my best. Instead of repaying what might not even be her fault with sacrificial scales that are pleasing to you, practice a little Christ-like kindness and repay it with the mercy of a smile, a 20% tip, and an invite card that's on the resource table that has a little note that invites her to church and says, sorry you had a bad day. Here's 20% nonetheless. The Lord loves you and wants to show you that kind of mercy that is infinitely better than my small little tip. Christians who know mercy and grace act like that. Maybe you need to admit to someone that you've been weighing them on your own self-righteous scales and that you're sorry. Maybe you need to pick up some invite cards on the way out. We all have countless ways walking out those doors today where we can practice grace and mercy in the lives of, of, of people who desperately need to experience that. Not just out there in the world with unsaved people, but with ourselves. Where do you think it starts? We're not going to magically become some place that cares about lost souls when we can't practice grace and mercy first here. What we mean when we talk about the gospel, the good news of Christ coming to establish his kingdom, what we need, what we mean is that God's mercy, his unconditional love and acceptance, which motivated him to go to the cross to wipe away our sins, what we mean is that his mercy is freely available to all who accept 
His call. So instead of creating an environment in the church that makes accepting that call something that has my prerequisites, we need to be ever vigilant in creating an environment of fellowship instead of Pharisaism. A community of people whose relationships are marked by mercy and grace as the glue that holds them together. So I want to encourage you to not let a handshake and a smile on Sunday morning be the full extent of your relationships at First Christian Church. You're not going to experience a lot of, a lot of really redemptive grace and mercy in the body of Christ if that's where it stays. I beg you to get involved in fellowship where you will rub shoulders with other believers so that we can continue to practice a community of grace-based love for one another. Get involved in a study group where we gather to learn about the Scriptures and form a Christian worldview. Or in a life group where prayer and word and relationships come together to apply the Word of God in a grace-based small group. Get involved in helping with VBS where you can get to know other people and experience some of that mercy and extend it to others. Come to the impact team meeting in early August to learn about how you can serve and help us create that kind of community here in the body. There are are places available to get to know folks beyond the one hour on Sunday morning, which is a good way to keep from isolation. To keep from isolation and disconnectedness. To learn to enjoy the fellowship of others trying to learn to live from grace instead of sacrifice. We want that for our church body. We want our church's environments to, be, to become places where the load is lightened and burdens are shared. Places where we pray for one another and share life in community with one another. Where the weight of sin that, that isolates can be carried with others who will unconditionally love and accept us. As people unified by acceptance of our need for Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, we can bear the load together. We invite you into that kind of mercy. We invite you into that kind of fellowship and pray that it will continue here. Let's pray together.